0: Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Midy Arrow Meets podcast where we speak to a wide range of people from the music world. This month I'm speaking to Jake McNeil who has spent 28 years in the music industry predominantly as a band manager um, and for 9 years he was the manager of Mauro Picotto. He also worked with a large number of other DJs, including Dahul, Anazido DeBase, Mario Pugh, Joy Kitty Conti, and others, before moving on to be the manager of Scouting for Girls, who were a ridiculously successful pop act. There is now a GoFundMe page for the podcast if you would like to donate to help the running of it. I do all of this on my own, by myself, for free, But let's get started. The first question that I asked Jake was about his musical beginnings.
1: Well, I didn't, I I was unfortunate. My parents are very religious and um, I got taken to or dragged to church every Sunday and we weren't allowed to play any games on Sunday. They were very, very religious people, um, which is fine, but it kind of meant that they weren't really happy with me listening to a lot of popular music of the day, the Elvis Presley's and Beatles and stuff like that, that I really wanted to listen to. But I was very fortunate. My uncle was in a band um, and he used to sneak me uh, tapes of uh, police and uh, all kinds of bands. So I got my musical uh, knowledge from my uncle. And as he was in a band, um, they had gone to London. They tried to make it almost got a deal, didn't, came back home, but they were quite big news in Inverness. Um, and they used to play shows for about six, 700 people. And he, my uncle was a drummer, and he used to put me behind his drum kit um, and I would sort of peer over into the into the crowd, um, which, you know, from a point of view from my my own ears and a health and safety is obviously a terrible thing to do to a young child. But <laughs> really, as a young child, it was just amazing because... To me, my uncle was just like a rock star, 500 people all screaming. It was just amazing. So anyway, that's where I got addicted to music. And um, yeah, and I got all my music from my uncle up until I was about 11 or 12 and started getting really rebellious and just started demanding music, you know, of my very religious parents, bless them. Mm-hmm.
0: That's brilliant. And I guess it makes it more exciting when you're being given it as like contraband items. Absolutely. It it, It has so much more excitement to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, just all the music that I got from him was just incredible, you know. And um, anyway, I turned out to be this this huge, huge police fan. They were my favourite kind of band as as a kid. Um, And yeah, I got all this kind of stuff at Pink Floyd. And he gave me this real sort of musical education, which I would never have got, probably, if he hadn't felt so sorry for me being so deprived of a, you know, of, of a popular music upbringing, you know.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I think possibly those early feelings of being on stage and feeling like the applause and the energy of the performance was probably also quite a buzz too.
1: It was incredible. The adrenaline I was getting as an eight-year-old. <laughs> I've been chasing it <laughs> for you know. But, I mean, funny enough, I mean, I called my management company after the name of their band, which was uh, Cut, uh K-U-T, Um, but I had no idea at the time that it was actually a very rude swear word in Dutch um, that my uncle had actually named his band and it was only (laughs) when I started working internationally and handed out a business card um, to uh, somebody from Sony in Holland with cut management I'll let your listeners and yourself work out what it means in Dutch Uh, and actually Hmm. watching them actually literally recoil that I actually spoke to my uncle about it and he said I thought you knew I said no I didn't but there you go
0: (laughs) that's brilliant <laughs> true story what a time to, yeah what a time to learn what it means when you're handing over to a native native speaker i'm learning a new language you know that's what i thought definitely that seems like a perfectly logical decision to call it something like that something inspirational to you um that's amazing did you change the name after that how what did you i kept it yeah um uh, I, you know
1: i just it became a bit of a talking point and um yeah it's it's just a good way of being able to speak to people in holland about your your management company really you know because everyone laughed at it you know
0: yeah i think they'd probably find that quite funny and, and also like quite memorable you know they find it like oh that's the guy whose things called cunt yeah his agent's called cunt yeah that guy <laughs> That's amazing. That's
1: I was convinced he had told me the story because it was a very sort of punk story that he was very proud of, you know. But uh, alas, oh. if he had told me, it had, um, yeah, it had escaped my memory, you know.
0: That's so cool. That's brilliant. So, um, yeah. So what were you doing with that company? What, what, sort of, what sort of acts were you working on?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I'd worked on, I started off working in, with DJs. Well, I started off as a, an event promoter. Um, I'd gone to, one of my friends dragged me to a rave in about 1989, and I did all the things that you do at raves, and it just blew my mind. It just completely changed my world. Um, And then after a couple of years, um, I got made redundant from my office job, um, had the company car, the briefcase, and it really wasn't me. Um, So I I set up a a rave, uh, I started promoting rave clubs in the north of Scotland, where, where I grew up. I'd moved back there and I did that for about five years and that kind of introduced me into DJs and dance music was very young back then. It was very wild west. There wasn't agents or managers or there wasn't really any sort of infrastructure for it. Um, So I just started helping out DJs and getting some bookings. And then I started doing some deals when record companies started coming down and it just was a very sort of natural kind of progression. So basically I started working with lots of, um, rave DJs, um, and that kind of led me on to people like uh, Mauro Picotto. He was um, uh, DJ Mag. um, He peaked at number seven in the world, and I managed him for for nine years. Um, He had 21 top 40 hits, and he was like a, you know, he was my first really real big DJ, um, and we would spend every weekend sort of traveling about internationally. And At the same time, I kind of picked up a bunch of other DJs, Asido The Bass, Dahul Mario Pugh, Joy Kitty Conti, Mark Spoon of Jam and Spoon. So I just kind of, it all kind of happens. There wasn't any sort of great master plan. People always ask me that, how did you do it? And, you know, what was your strategy? And there wasn't any at all. I just followed one thing into another thing. And if I did that quite well, then that would introduce me to another DJ and so on and so on. And then, of course, in between those things, there was, there was more failures and successes because that's the music business, you know?
0: Mm, yeah and what was it about a particular person uh or de- or who is a dj that that made you think i want to work with this person
1: uh, it's the music if the music grabs me but also their personalities they have to have um i find that people that are stars are quite you know they're very dynamic they kind of attract you to them you know um mm. and um yeah, they have that je ne sais quoi. i don't want to say the word x factor even though i've just said it but um <laughs> yeah, it's got that they, they just have something about them they walk into a room and you can tell that they're stars and they don't even have to be big stars you can they can be people that um maybe only have like a hundred fans but you know that's their world and that's all they want to be but you know that they're a star within that hundred fans you know so so yeah it's that that's the things that always attracted me
0: yeah i, I can totally understand that but um i mean uh, and I have seen that of people running uh coming into rooms and they've got that they've got that energy um what what do you think that is like what is that I, I honestly don't know if
1: if if everybody knew we would bottle it and sell it wouldn't we you know we don't know it's just there's a personality thing that some people have um and like i say I know people that have got that kind of personality but they're not creative you know um and they're, they're the ones that, are, you know, like uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell would call them connectors. And if you've ever read the book, Outliers, where he talks that there's are certain people who connect um, stories, ideas, trends to other people, you know. Um, mm. And I've people like that, you know, people like radio pluggers or tend to be in sort of sales and they're just very dynamic and likeable. But um, yeah, I don't know what it is, but uh, uh, yeah, they've, they've got it, you know.
0: Yeah. And what would be your your principal role as a manager of of say a dj uh maybe prior to the big superstar the big djs what would be your role in 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 like helping them in their career
1: yeah well when i first started out it was just sort of doing some bookings for them they didn't basically djs don't or artists don't like to negotiate their own fees promoters don't like to negotiate it's it's a bit awkward really isn't it um so you just end up I just started being a middleman and therefore I started negotiating fees for them and then I started organizing travel and then you know they started becoming successful and then record labels said oh they're getting successful I want to do a deal with them so they would put them on I wasn't even officially a manager I was just helping people out um and people I, I used to get sort of like phone calls you know and this old brick of a mobile and uh, I go, oh, I'm so-and-so from so-and-so records and I'm like, you know, completely bemused as to why they were calling me. And It's like, oh, it's because like DGFX told me you're the manager and I'm like, okay. And yeah, it just kind of happens like that. So so that's what would happen That, And then once you start working with superstar DJs, really it's just an extension of that, but there's a lot more people involved because, you know, there's a lot more success, you know. Um, Instead of dealing with a promoter, Who's maybe got 200 people there? You're talking about a promoter that's got 2,000 cap capacity, or it's in an arena for 20,000. You know, so it's just the infrastructure that grows. But the essence of it really is you're you're there to assist the artist, maximise their income, and create as much opportunities for them to exceed uh, as an artist. And equally at the same time, help them cope with the pressure um, of being an artist because that is the the, the biggest things that stops them. Um, Yeah, we all get in our own way.
0: Mm. And I imagine that um, different personalities will require more nurturing than others as well. I guess as a manager, you've also got to work out how much do I need to be involved in this person's well-being or their diet or whatever, you know, like how much some people will probably really need your help and others don't need some in certain areas. Would that be true?
1: Well, I think the, my experience is that they all need help, that they don't all necessarily admit that they need help. So some people will be quite open. And today it's a lot different because young people are a lot more open and they talk about their emotions. Um, but if you're going back, you know, 30 years, 25 years, which we are, uh, in some cases going back to the very early stage, you know, I've been doing this 28 years, um, then you um, you know, people didn't like to talk about their emotions, myself included. You know, it's just not what we did. So you had to kind of help them without making it obvious you were helping them, you know. Whereas now I find people are quite open and they actually come seeking for help, you know.
0: Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think people are a lot more open with with their friends about problems maybe nowadays. Um, yeah, but that was definitely the era of the what we've already said, the the the, the like phrase that was coined the superstar DJs that was like the ear of like the super club the superstar DJs um there was so much going on there and I mean yeah I remember all of the names that you that you listed as being like hugely influential at the time um yeah what were some of the what were some of the highlights of of, of that time like those that because you also you've mentioned to me that you would you also would tour around the world as well um, yeah, what sort of places did that take you to?
1: Well, it just took us all over. I mean, we just did create, we would go to like Colombia for a long weekend and we would do four shows. We'd do Cartagena, we'd do Medium, we'd do Bogota, and we'd do, uh, I'm trying to remember the last one. I can't remember. Anyway, it's irrelevant. So we would go and we'd play four shows in four different cities in Colombia, get involved in everything that happens, in, you know, when in Rome. And then you would fly back again, you know, and then I would go into the office. And I'd do a few days in the office and then we'd fly out somewhere again. So, and you know, we we once went to Australia for four for four days as well. We flew there 24 hours, did four shows. We were part of the big day out, and they were doing like a four arenas and four, and there was a bunch of people. Seb Fontaine was there, Goldie was there, Steve Lawler, and they were just basically jetting DJs in and out all over the place. It was it was like a mad thing. But we flew there, did four arena shows, and then flew back again. I mean. It was it was absolutely crazy. I mean, not, don't get me wrong, it wasn't like that every single weekend. There was weekends we could have done maybe two or three shows in the UK. Maybe we went out to, we did one a Friday night in Germany at a festival and a Saturday night in Austria. But basically you were away every single weekend. Every summer you were away. We were always did a season in Ibiza. Um, and then the only time we actually took off would be in January. Um, so we would take the whole month of January off. But, yeah, we were doing... 150 shows easy you know uh, a, a year probably more I remember I remember one particular year we calculated it because we were calculating we were collecting the air miles and we did 250,000 miles in one year which um to give you some perspective that's 10 times around the world you know yeah year.
0: wow um, and you know that's it, more than David Attenborough's has done <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it was it was just nuts. And anyway, this is this is how, you know, I started getting introduced. I'm my artist, I started getting introduced to burnout because, you know, your the, your body clock is just all over the shop, um, you know, with different time zones. Particularly when, if you think in some, if you're doing Friday night in Tokyo and Saturday night in Hong Kong, you're in different time zones, you know. Even if you're touring America, if you're doing East Coast and then, you know, and you're doing mid-coast, you're still in different time zones, right? We would end up at some club at six o'clock in the morning, something like that. But for us, it could be the very next day. So there's a pressure for the DJ to be excited and be mentally prepared. when really, they just want to go to bed. So, of course, it's only natural that alcohol and other stimulants are introduced to DJs, um, which they take in order to um, have the right mindset to basically entertain 2,000, 20,000 people, whatever it may be. So if you, you know, if you compound all that up over lots of years, you can see why there's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, and a load of um, burnouts, you know, in the music industry.
0: Definitely, yeah, because it, it's quite a polar, a polar thing happening there, like a conflict, isn't there? If you're absolutely knackered, and essentially to you it is, wednesday morning at 6 30 in the morning and you're about to step out into an arena with two or three or four five thousand people yeah i guess there's going to be a the sense of it being in a slightly um surreal and dreamlike experience that maybe you can't connect to it on 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 like a natural level
1: yeah well exactly it it would be impossible to do it um i i I feel that yeah, I don't think that you could compete at the highest levels of um, a DJ entertainment without using some stimulant in that kind of circumstance. You know, um, you know, alcohol is is normally the one of choice, but naturally, as the, the, there's many other alternatives. You know.
0: Certain artists, you know, artists like Avicii, for example, probably was, um, yeah, a, a, a salient victim of that whole needing to keep being up and keep performing.
1: Uh, yeah, it's just, I think it's just all the pressures. And, um, I mean, Armand Van Buren made a kind of quote about it afterwards. I can't I'll paraphrase it, but basically what uh, Armand Van Buren said immediately after Avicii's death was that, you know, we all feel self doubt. And we're always comparing ourselves to others and pushing ourselves further. And a thing you'll find that I find um, uh, about artists uh, in the music industry is, and um, it's also very common of people that work in the music industry as well, is that we're insecure overachievers. And what that means is that it's our insecurities and our need to uh, feel better about ourselves that drives us on and gives us this insane ambition and drive. So we feel the more success we have, then the better we'll feel of ourselves. And the truth of the matter is that that's not true. That just doesn't happen. But it takes you a long time of trying and failing before you actually work out. Because originally, uh, certainly speaking personally, I didn't even know I was doing that. I just couldn't understand why I wasn't getting fulfillment out of it. And I was just chasing more and more success. Now artists do that. Um, and it's a very, very common thing. And Comparisons, particularly, you know, it's if you look at if you were to look up at a type personality in the dictionary, you would see all the things like ambition and drive, all that kind of positive uh, uh, and much desired characteristics. But what you don't see is the flip side of that because cause and effect, yin and yang, what drives that is a deep rooted uh, insecurities. Uh, no, I, I won't say in all cases, but I would definitely say in most cases. Um, and that provides a really kind of unbalanced life for a DJ uh, or, a, or a musician or an artist or anybody, really, because when things are going well, there's a bit of swagger. And when things aren't going so well, there's a, you know, the head goes down and you're you're kind of up and down. It kind of ebbs and flows, you know, um, and it just adds on, adds in lots and lots of pressure, um, particularly to artists, uh, you know.
0: Definitely, especially like how you would define success as well or how they would define their success. Um, success is a really thing, a really difficult thing to define like anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think we're always... It's also, I guess, about managing your expectations as well. I know you've written a little bit about having really high expectations and then not meeting them. Um, yeah, that's also something, I guess, that they have to be able to manage and um yeah control the controllables.
1: Yeah, no you're actually right, but it's very difficult in that kind of environment. So in that in a in a record or a music business environment, it's success at all costs. And it's very difficult to kind of get away from that mindset because um your record label's talking about it, your r's are talking about, it, inevitably your managers are talking about it. You're having meetings about how to get to number one and da-da-da-da-da. It's very difficult to get away from that. Um, the key really is to focus on the process and you know it's it's definitely it's a peak performance uh technique used in elite sports where um, they will focus on the process the fundamentals of the game and they'll let the score take care, of, take care of itself and that is a technique to basically remove the pressure um now that works in an environment where um i mean the coaches that have made that very um, famous is phil jackson who's one um, the most successful basketball coach of all time he's won 11 NBA championships. When you're working in that environment and your manager is removing all the pressure from you, it's quite easy, it's easier to work on the focus or to concentrate on uh, the processes. However, in the music industry, you don't have that because everyone's focusing on the results because it's such a results industry. So it's very, very, very difficult. Um, But yeah, I mean, certainly as a manager um, uh, and now as a consultant, what I do is I try and remove the pressure from artists by focusing on the process. Yeah.
0: Mm. There's a lot to unpack really with this whole subject area. Maybe the first thing to mention is that the way that I encountered your, your idea, or maybe the way that we encountered each other was through Reddit and through some of the um, really insightful posts that you've put on Reddit, which I will link to in the show notes about all of these subjects and um i think what was what's what's um what was noticeable about them was the um the um the integrity in what you're saying and the and the truth behind it because there are so many people just spouting out ideas and um yeah i think what you've written there is um a lot of really useful advice on on this subject uh but yeah, it's really been good. And I've been reading back through it again today and like, yeah, it's um, there's a lot of useful information for people on this exact subject. And it's almost like a like a stoic approach to to sport. I don't know. Have you ever read Darren Brown's book, uh, Happy? I
1: haven't, but I've heard it's very, very good.
0: And I, I believe that's quite stoic, uh,
1: stoically influenced, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's like, I mean, so it basically introduced me to stoicism and then um, so many other things beyond it. But yeah, essentially what he's saying is that um, control, you can control your thoughts and your actions and that's all. So like anything that's outside of those realms, just let them be whatever they're going to be. Don't shout at the guy who's doing something that you don't like in the street because he's doing his thing. You can't control it. Control your stuff and you know that that's where, you know, you'll get to a better place in doing that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I feel it's, um, I think, control the controllables, which is essentially what you've just said. You can control your attitude, your effort, and your reaction. So, you know, if, if something bad happens to you, you can control how you react to it. Um, so that's the only three things that I believe that I can control. And anything out with that, I have to just, I have to surrender to it and just release it. And I learned that from uh, Stoicism. Um, and I feel, and again, this is this is classic um, sports psychology, mental skills, uh, coaching, training. Is that that is essentially all an athlete can do? Athletes are taught, and they have been taught this way for decades. Um, they're very much ahead of, in terms of like elite athletes. Athletes they're very much ahead in terms of their training than elites, uh, artists, musicians, actors. You know, people in the creative industries. Sadly. Um, but nonetheless, they, they so they've been knowing they've known this for decades. But yeah, it's a really important thing, is because that's all we can control. Um, but it, you'll find most of the things that create anxiety for people are us worrying about things that are out of our control.
0: Definitely, absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's really interesting the link that you bring between sport and music, and that uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of sort of mental skill coaches and psychologists working in sports. And in music, um, there isn't that, you know, and, and maybe one. it's all resting on the shoulders of the artist. Um, do you know, uh, there's a guy called Tim Ferriss, who's an American who, who does a really great podcast. He, his one recently has some really great, um, he has a conversation with a guy called Jim Lower, uh, Dr. Jim Lower, and yeah, he talks about this this approach in sport and about um, about the inner voice, like how we talk to ourselves. Like, what are we saying? What are we saying to ourselves in those really hard moments when you've just fucked up? Like, what are you saying to yourself? And he, they use Roger Federer as an example about, yeah, like, what do you think Roger Federer is saying to himself when he misses a shot? And of course he's not calling him he's not like calling himself a fucking idiot, is he? He's not like going going mad at himself, beating himself up. He's calm and he's collected and he's controlled um, that inner voice. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting chat which totally relates uh, to, to this realm of of um, yeah, like mental approach to things.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I actually, I I haven't heard that. I'm going to listen to that podcast, but I I know I've read an article of Jim's where he mentions that and he he, he talks about Federer and Federer had this incredible ability of when he made a mistake of not playing in his mind. Um, And I I believe that's what you're referring to. And Federer had this, um, was very good at staying in the present. So um, what we do, um, uh, we, uh, when we are in fear, we are thinking about the future And when we are feeling shame and guilt, um, we are are ruminating about the past. Um, And fedra is just very, very good at staying in the present because at the present right now, I'm having a lovely conversation with you, whereas an hour before this, I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what's going to be happening, what kind of questions are going to be happening. Um, And this is what happens, and it's just human nature. And um, funnily enough, I am actually doing my mental skills training. Um, I'm doing that at the moment and to get certification. So whilst it's something I've used... Um, I've always studied um, uh, sports psychology uh, from a matter of interests and in how coaches and leadership, I've always thought they had the best skills and I've tried to introduce that into artist management and now my consultancy. Um, but now what I'm actually doing is I'm actually going and learning or training my mental skills, training to be become a certified coach. Um, at which point I'm then gonna adapt it as best I possibly can, add in my experience and philosophies um, to help um artists going forward um but yeah i mean you're right i mean it's uh the self-talk we the way we speak to ourselves you wouldn't speak to another human like that or if you did you would feel really exactly
0: yeah that's what they said in one of the in, in one element of it is like would you like that voice to be broadcast to like all of your friends what you're saying to yourself would you be comfortable with it and like no of course you would it's fucking really horrible you know like we're the worst critics for ourselves and
1: what we have to we see, what we believe as well, is we believe this voice in our head is true because it's in our head, right? But if that were true, you know, it, it really all it is, right? It's it starts in our head, right, that then create our emotions, and then because it's, it becomes an emotion, it feels true. So if we're telling ourselves we're a failure, we feel that sunken feeling, and we feel like a failure, right? Um, and the way you can do that, if, if I'm watching a horror movie, then the director, the actors. Uh, uh, the people that scored the movie are all creating an atmosphere to induce fear within me, and it works. But so the head it's in my head. It's telling me fear. I'm feeling fear. I'm jumping, but I know I'm watching a TV screen. I know I'm not really in danger, and all it is is a trick. So this is why people believe what they you know hear in their head, and it's just thoughts. That's all it is, right? And your idea is to kind of you can't stop the thoughts is to control them and change your self So instead of being negative self-talk it's positive self-talk and the way you would do that so before um sport pro sports elite athletes they have rituals so they'll do all these crazy things and they'll i don't know they'll flex their fingers and they'll point to the sky whatever it is they've got a ritual and a routine which they know sets them up for a mindset and whilst they're doing that they're doing all positive self-talk you've got this no one's getting past me or i'm going to score every chance and it's that taking that break and just before you start performing and having that moment with yourself um, to um, change your, your talk, which doesn't stop, to positive as opposed to negative. And it's all, there's all these kind of tricks like that. You know.
0: Yeah, I think it's really, really useful, Um, especially like right now. It's like really we've had a year of being introverted, most of us. Uh, So like now it's been a really easy time to be really hard on yourself and everyone's questioning like their lives and what they're doing and what their value and what they're worth and what their legacy is and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think the inner voice, being conscious of the inner voice, being a in some ways supportive uh yeah is is um yeah it's is definitely a useful thing do you are there any moments that you look back on that you think are oh, what with what you know now you would have maybe dealt with it a bit differently from, from what you've learned about looking after people
1: so 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 much i mean i had about five one hit wonders i mean a seat the base was, was one of them you know um and i just remember them at the time just you know clearly being in a lot of uh angst and anguish about you know um uh, following up a successful hit record is an incredibly difficult thing to do and it's all in their heads, you know? Um, yeah. I, I wrote in an article recently, um, I found, I found, I, I've never been able to find the data, but I've eventually found the, the, the data that for this. So 64% of all artists that have been in the Billboard Top 100 um, never get onto that you know, chart ever again. So 64% of all artists in the last six decades have been one hit wonders, you know? And certainly it's crazy. So it's crazy numbers. Um, and certainly that's not, there's a few that have been lucky, a few just because of trends or gimmicky, um, crazy frogs, that kind of songs. Of course, there's an element of that. But most of them, uh, particularly the ones I worked with, were very talented artists, very capable, but unfortunately couldn't get out of their heads. They choked. And when when you choke, whether you're on a sports arena or you're writing you know, music in a studio, you are performing below your skill level. Um, so that's something definitely I wish I'd known 20 years ago, you know. But many more things as well, you know. I mean, I worked with, um, uh, after DJs, I started working with pop bands. I worked with a multi-platin band, Skype for Girls. Um, there's so many things I would have changed, you know, different, differently there that, you um, you know, if you if if you just knew what you what I what I know now, um, you, we could it could have had smoother sailing, and yeah,
0: definitely. Hmm. I guess it's yeah things that you've probably taken forward in your career and learnt learnt from. Like we all have making. I mean, I make mistakes on a daily basis, but it's like yeah, all a learning process. It's part of it. Um. Yeah, you mentioned Azido de Base, which was like such a fu- it was such a huge record when it came out. It was, it was everywhere. Um. I remember working in like really like a club uh, that was like a pop club, like the place that everyone in my town would go out to and they would play it there. And it was like a cool track that sounded underground, but it was, it was across the board everywhere.
1: Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I only worked with him in the UK, so I was this UK agent. Um, but uh, yeah, I did a lot, of, lot of gigging with uh, Ingo and you know, great, great guy, you know, and it was, it was, it was just everywhere. It was my first top 10 um Oh, no, actually, sorry, it wasn't my first first top ten hit, but it was my first time I had an artist on Top of the Pops, which was kind of my original goal when I was a kid, like... You know, I'm sure you were the same, right? You, you know, we grew up watching Top of the Pops go in and the next day at the school and talking about whichever artist would be number one or whichever outrageous artist had done some outrageous thing or mine some outrageous thing or whatever. Um, so yeah, it was my first artist ever um, on Top of the Pops. But yeah, I mean, it really was, cool. yeah, it, it was cool. And it was just everywhere, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it was it was a great experience.
0: Yeah, there was also a really good breaks remix of that track uh, by the, I think the Stanton Warriors. Um, yeah, I remember that being on a like a plump DJ's mix CD uh, about maybe five, maybe not five years, but a few years after the original, and it was like, yeah, that's that track still works at a Breaks track. It was. Um, I mean,
1: he's still releasing it now, isn't he? You know, bless him. You know what I mean? So. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, of course, that, that was that was a Timo Mass remix that was the one that popularised. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. I was wondering why why am I thinking of Timo Mass? Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. So it was it was a Timo Mass. It wasn't even his original.
1: It's a Timo Mass version of, uh, remix of it, which kind of blew up, you know. And that happens. Um, my first number one was uh, York on the Beach, but uh, that was a Maru Picotto um, remix. Um, and they, they just chose that version, you know, to go to radio with. And of course, back then it's all radio. So whatever you go to radio with ends up becoming the hit.
0: Mm, no, that was fantastic as well. I remember, totally remember that track uh, being out. And um, yeah, like the Mario Pocotto releases, like Lizard, it was obviously a massive track. Um, Komodo was another one of his, wasn't it? He had some huge tracks. He had um, Lizard,
1: Iguana, Komodo um yeah so he had them all baguettes <laughs> he had yeah, he had the wrong with random names like you know birdie um i suppose i suppose birdie makes a bit more sense you you know i've been an italian dj and whatnot but um yeah I, I i yeah he used to just come up with these random names like you know the funny thing is like with lizard the hook was people won't know it but if you're a certain vintage you'll know it it was one of the biggest worldwide dance hits of that time you know and this whole thing was like coming to get you coming to get you and um, the thing is that they learned most of their English from like um, watching, you know, MTV and stuff like that. So it's it's really random how they come up with all this stuff, you know.
0: Yeah. And it, it's very much like an A and B section to that track. It's got like the emotional string bit with the riff and then just the banging sort of. I couldn't I don't know. It's. I think we've put Mario Picotto stuff. It's quite hard. It's quite undefinable, like his style, isn't it? Um, I saw one person called it, like, bugged-out techno, which I can sort of understand. But, yeah, it's very bold, wasn't it? His style's, like, really big and bold.
1: Yeah, well, that's... Uh, I, mean, I mean, when I first met him, he was, an un- he was unknown outside of Italy. Um, and basically what he did is he took trance, he took techno, and he was the first one to put it together, and he created a new sort of sound. Um, and he had the... the I mean, I, I don't know if you remember things like the 49ers and Capella and stuff like that, all the Italian house... I mean, these were all like top 10 records across Europe. Um, um, you would, pro- If you heard them, I'm sure you would recognise them. They were huge. And- oh, I remember Capella, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so he, he was the ghostwriter, one of the ghostwriters behind that. So he was like a hugely, or is a hugely talented producer, songwriter. But basically it started working for him when he basically took two different uh, genres, trance and techno, put them together, created that sound along with the, the hits and the hooks, Um, And as I say, he he was unknown and it was just fortuitous that I, you know, came across him. I'd heard a white label um, from a friend who was a PR of Lizard, uh, loved it and got in contact. Um, um, So I was I was quite fortuitous being the right time, right place, as as life often is. Um, Mm. But yeah, I mean, within two years, he went from completely unknown outside Italy to well, number seven in the world. So um, and that was, yeah, all, all down to uh the the songs but mo- mostly the sound and and how you know if you create something new everyone's sort of ears pick up because they're just not used to hearing it it's different frequencies isn't it you know
0: yeah, absolutely. And and like at the right time for him too maybe because I remember being around 2000 it, there was definitely a feeling of change of like I, well everyone was like what's going to happen in the year 2000 there was like this mystique to it wasn't there. So, yeah, there was a lot of new stuff, a lot of like mashing up of of styles. Um yeah, I watched a set of his the other night from Mayday 2001 which um yeah, had so many classic tracks. I just remember so many tracks off that that were just about during those those times yeah so i was going to mention about one hit wonders yeah cuz one hit wonders do happen you know they happen um happens quite well very regularly as as you your data <laughs> suggests um but yeah do you do you remember the track dk8 murder was the base yeah oh my god that was like the best track ever like when that came out everyone that just was played everywhere and it it sounded like this um it, it had to be like a superstar team behind it and then yeah i mean for me that's like the ultimate one hit wonder uh dance track that um yeah i thought it was like you know like planet perfecto was a dream team of like paul oakenfold jx and i can't remember who the other person was but yeah dk murder was the base was one of those sorts of sort of one hit wonders that um yeah just really killed it <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, the dance music just generated some brilliant... I mean, we were very lucky to be around, I think. Anyway, I feel very blessed to have been um, around at a time where it was just such a cultural phenomenon, really, isn't it? You know, it's been, it's been the biggest youth culture movement, um, well, for the last 20, 30 years. You know, before that, you had punk, which is obviously hugely influential, but punk only lasted... I can't remember. It was a very short time, wasn't it? Like eighteen months, two years, three years, something along those lines. And of course, you know, dance music has moved now into pretty much pop music, and, you know, and on on the extreme of the spectrum. But yeah, there were so many Bowie one hits uh, wonders back then. It was just fantastic, you know. Uh, it was real, real great times, like, you know, uh, the whole dance music thing. It was fantastic.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I think those it was it was probably it was sort of pre-internet, wasn't it? And it did feel like. Like the whole genre was shared by nations. It was like it. It, it wasn't like there was no thing that it was like a, I guess you had like pockets like a British style of something. But all of those techno and the, and trance acts. Um, um, yeah, there was all like this. It was it. There was a there was a sense of unity. I don't know if that's just nostalgia, but there was this sense of um, there. They're our DJs. It wasn't just like an Italian guy. It was like our DJ.
1: I I definitely felt it Um, and certainly because it was kind of underground wasn't it and um, I mean when I I mean I I never well I went to a couple of of, uh, illegal raves but I mean most of the stuff I went to was licensed and um, but even then you're in the middle of a field and all these tents and everyone's around you. And it's kind of like, we get it, you know I mean? But nobody else got it. And you kind of, it was one of those things, because I remember, you know, I told you I got dragged to the, my first raid by a friend of mine and I was drunk at the time. Uh, and of course, within an hour, I got it. Um, but then you're speaking to, you know, your people, that, your friends that haven't been yet and nobody got it. Until, and, but as soon as they went there, you get it and it was kind of like this massive club and um it was brilliant absolutely growing, you know so yeah fantastic time yeah
0: yeah yeah and how did it so you mentioned that you you that you went from djs to bands how did uh, like how did, did your approach change or, or what yeah why did you make that shift what, what led you to do that
1: just years and years of touring and burning out and um it just got it was just getting too much really you know and um, um yeah, we just, I don't know, um, over, I'm trying to remember how many years it would, would actually have been. Um, it would have been about 12, 13, 14 years. I mean, with, with Picotto, it was like nine years of constant touring, you know, um, as like I say, every weekend. Um, so it just, it just got too much. And yeah, I just said, after a burnout, I said, And also just getting a bit older as well and going, look, I can't really be up at six o'clock in the morning in Singapore and then, you know, go back to the office. And, And not only that, you know, I started to get involved in, you know, in a more meaningful personal relationship. All these kind of things all start happening at the same time. So I thought that it would be I thought it would be much better to get involved with bands because. Concerts finish at eleven o'clock at night. <laughs> Gigs finish <laughs> at six o'clock in the morning. So that that was my uh, rationale for it, and and it was good. It really, I really enjoyed it. It was it was different, and it was a lot more professional. It was a lot more established. Uh, and that's not to say that dance music isn't professional now. It's very professional now. But nonetheless, when I left in two thousand and eight, um, it was still a bit wildy, westy. You know, it was definitely more. There was a more structure and infrastructure. In dance music, it was a lot more professional than when I first started, um, but nonetheless, it hadn't reached its uh, its full level of uh, professionalism as it is now. Um, so yeah, so it was very different, but I I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the band thing was was a was a, a more mature thing for me. I got home, uh, I was home in bed by midnight, and that was that was my main reason for doing it. And I didn't have to tour every every weekend as well.
0: Hmm, that seems like perfectly logical perfect logical decision like why didn't I do this ten years ago it's so easy <laughs> <laughs> you've got more people to deal with though haven't you does that does that like dynamic change if you've got a band of like four or five people it does, yeah I mean again it usually there's uh,
1: within the band there's normally a manager within the band it tends to be the front man um he tends to have or he or she tends to have the biggest ego. writes the songs and therefore they kind of um, control the, the situation. So they're the point person within it. So ultimately, yeah, you're dealing with that uh, per person, normally the front person, um, and then that filters out. But uh, yeah, you're dealing with more people. But also, if particularly with major labels, you've got this whole layer of promotion team and infrastructure it's, and you know, you're overseeing it. So um, when I'm managing a top 10 DJ in the world, I'm overseeing three or four people when I'm managing a multi platinum pop band, uh, there was I had a business partner, but the two of us were overseeing thirty, thirty five people, you know, and trying to keep all those, uh, you know, those plates spinning and ensure that everything was happening at the time because it was supposed to be happening with so many moving parts. Isn't easy, you know. So yeah. <laughs>
0: Terms of like a band with a piano in the lead, there's not many like bands that really make it with a with a piano up front. I can think of like Coldplay as a British example and Ben Folds, Ben Folds Five, who were like my favourite band growing up as a kid. Yeah, no, they
1: are. He is fantastic. I do love
0: that. <laughs> yeah, so um I guess logistically there's more stuff to carry when you've got a piano than couple of turntables, or i didn't even take <laughs> need to take the turntables.
1: So, so this is the thing so uh, djs i mean obviously there's a lot more like if you're if you're a top dj now you're traveling with full production team and production managers and tour managers and all that kind of stuff but back when we were doing it it was basically myself mauro uh and a box of records um and and that, you know and he had his cds with them and and that was it you know um when you start touring arenas um and, you know, like with Mauro, that was up to arena level. In fact, Mauro was the first DJ to headline a, a football stadium. He IAX Ajax Football Stadium um, wow. for id and um, And that was 50,000 people, right? But even then, it's just me and Mauro in a record. Do you know what I mean? You could almost turn up with two plastic bags full of records. you know what I mean? Um, it wasn't quite... We, we had a, a, a record box, I can assure you. But uh, mm. anyway, you go from that, and then you start touring arenas with bands... Um, and you've got three, you know, Arctic lorries. You've got two tour buses. Um, you've got production managers, tour managers, blah blah blah. All this crew. I mean, it's you know, because you're you're carrying all the different production. You're carrying the PA. You're carrying the lights. Um, so it's it was this completely different um, environment, you know. But I mean, listen, I loved it. I, it was great. It was great fun. you know. Mm,
0: mm. Um, yeah. And they were very. They've been a very successful band. Huge, huge like airplay on the radio, lots of tours. Yeah, didn't you mention that you they approached you to to manage them or like um yeah, how, how did it go about how did it come about that you um you ended up managing scouting for girls?
1: Well, I mean like all these things, it's it's all they're always a bit random. Um but I mean basically had this other band um called Tourist who everybody wanted to sign. Um uh, all the major labels, the publishers, um, and pretty much both sides of the Atlantic. I had all these major labels from America. Um, so that was the band. They were really cool. And I thought, this is the band that's going to kind of make it. And then I just randomly bumped into um, Scouting for Girls. No, actually, that's not sorry, that's um Somebody sent me um, one of their tracks, which had been uh, XFM at the time were doing It's a British um, radio station. At the time, we're doing an uh, unsigned competition. And they they, uh, they had the song Elvis Ain't Dead. And it won the unsigned track of the week on XFM National six weeks in a row. And I listened to it. And it reminded me of The Feeling, who were a very big band at the time. And I thought, thought, oh, okay, cool. I'll go and check them out. So I went down uh, and checked them out. Um, but essentially, I signed them without ever having seen them live. I, uh, Roy, who's the front man, is a very, very charming man. He's a very, very lovely guy. In fact, all the band are. And I, he just completely charmed me. And But I didn't really have that much expectations of it, if I'm honest. Um, you know, I just didn't think it was really going to happen. But the, the real story behind all that is, is how we actually got them signed. So tourists who were the really cool band that everybody wanted to sign, we had a showcase with them at the Water Rats in, in London, and it was a complete disaster. Nobody signed them. Um, and then with Scouting for Girls, we had a showcase at Dublin Castle, another uh, club venue that was on the a and circuit in London. And all the a turned up well, about 10, 11 um, labels turned up, watched one or two songs of Scouting for Girls and then left quickly. And that was the end of that. Um, So being a persistent so-and-so, I decided that I was going to send uh, the managing directors uh, demos in the post. um, Because this is going back to 2006, 2007. So at that time, we're still talking about MySpace. We're still sending out CDs in the post uh that's that's how that's how long ago this was kids and um anyway so i sent out these all these cvs to these managing directors bearing in mind that the AR managers and anr directors had already passed on scouting for girls so my logic was i'm going to get this demos get these demos to the managing directors now obviously managing directors don't sit all day waiting for unsolicited demos to come, drop through the letterbox, and then they go and listen to them. So clearly they have people like interns do that. And clearly everybody was doing that. So, but as luck would have it, the managing director of Epic Records, a guy called Nick Raphael, who's now the co-president of Capital Records UK. He had been caught for the second time, um, driving uh, using his mobile phone. So he had to go to court. Now his court date had been postponed um, at very short notice. So this left him with two hours to kill. So he decided to go into, uh, under, underneath the desk's Epic Records, and I've seen it since, there's all these huge boxes, just full to the brim, overspilling with like demos. Anyway, he went to one of the boxes, he pulled out five demos, and the third one he listened to was Scouting for Girls. Um, at which point he called me up, said, I wanna sign the band. He came to the rehearsal studio the next week with Joe Charrington, who's the ever co-president of Capital Records UK and was then as head of AR, and they signed the band. And it just completely random. And you know, that's the way the music industry works, that uh, you're relying very heavily on serendipity and luck.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the stars aligning and underneath the table. <laughs>
1: And, and even uh, even after that, I mean, it, clearly this band was just written in the stars, right? After that, the radio plugger and the chairman of Sony, a guy called Jed Doherty, took down the then head of Radio 1, uh, George Orgertudis, who was the head of Apple Music and so on, uh, uh, more, more recently. Um, they invited him down to, to see Scouting for Girls play at Dublin Castle. And it was a sold-out show. The, uh, Scouting for Girls had been unsigned for 10 years, basically. Um, I'd pretty much given up on everything. And, um, so they took down George Ergoturus. Now back in those days, today it's more about Spotify, but back then, if you don't get playlists on Radio 1, it's game over before you even start. So George Ergoturus comes down, um, he's standing right in front of me and I'm getting really positive vibes. I'm thinking, he's liking this, he's liking this. Um, anyway, we go in the next day, I go into Sony, uh, uh for a meeting and, um, uh, George Orgututus, the head of Radio 1, had shared a car home with Jed Doherty, the then chairman of Sony uh, Music, at which point he turned round to Jed and said, over my dead body, will Scouting for Girls ever get played on Radio 1? So we were gutted, naturally. Um, But of course, there's nothing we could do about it. Um, And as luck would have it, the band were um, doing an acoustic session on uh, Radio 2 with Dermot O'Leary the following Saturday. And as luck would have it, Joe Wiley uh, was driving one of her daughters to a birthday party and listening to Radio 2. She heard Scouting for Girls more, well, she actually heard the drummer of Scouting for Girls cracking some jokes. She thought it was funny. They were playing their, their, their debut single, It's Not About You. She liked it. So the following Monday, she had a spot play. So uh, the DJs are given a, a playlist and they have to play everything. However, each DJ at Radio 1 is given one spot play. So she said, Oh, I'm going to play It's Not About You by Scouting for Girls. We were given two hours' notice. The band had built up a mailing list of 1,000 people uh, on their 10 years journey of being you know, 10 years is unsigned. So we quickly emailed out to 1,000 people so that when they heard the track, because it's a, a bit of a tester. So after Joe Wiley played it, she goes, If you like this song, text us in, email us in, phone up. And of course, all the fans did that. And two days later, Scouting for Girls are on the Radio One playlist, and they were the, the most played UK band. Uh, 2008, 2009, 2010. Pure
0: luck. Fantastic. And I yeah, I read that they also uh, it, it was MySpace days. Uh, that I read that they also um, they had a they had like a, they made their own fan club. Yeah, called Wolf, Wolf Cub. Was it Wolf Cub? Wolf. Club. So yeah wolf club yeah so they were they were also they were putting a lot of energy into like connecting with their fans and um hand making things and posting them out and um yeah that's brilliant when they can finally get that moment to call on the the fan club to rise up and phone in the uh, phone in radio one
1: i mean they worked so hard as i say 10 years i mean they, you know um they, as you say, they built up a thousand. So basically, this Wolf uh, Cub was essentially their fan clubs. And what Roy, Roy, uh, the songwriter um, and uh, frontman, he had won a Casio keyboard uh, in some sort of sound and sound competition or something like that. So anyway, he was writing songs, um, doing the vocals in his wardrobe, and making these demos. And he would send them out. You know, um, he would press them, uh, record them, put them on the CDs. Uh, do the covers and then send them out by post to all this this fan club for nothing, you know? And of course these people would go to the shows and he was, he was basically being a DIY artist before there was any need to, be, or before DIY artist exists, you know, in the, the current sense. Um, so he had built up all this fan base. And of course, if it, I mean, who knows? I mean, but if it wasn't for that, you know, it might not have happened. So all those years, 10 years of connecting with a, with a wee audience, um, yeah, that, that was the foundations which built their whole success on it.
0: Yeah, I can completely, completely understand that. Um, and in some of the things that you've written on Reddit as well, you've talked about connecting uh, with the audience and, um, yeah, um, being able to make that emotional, have like an emotional connection or, or have the, your audience may have an emotional connection to your music because um, yeah there are a lot of things nowadays in in the social media realm of like how to get followers and it's like um, it, I guess there's a lot of them quite cynical processes in like just getting people to follow you um, yeah what would be your advice in order to sort of grow an audience and and yeah do it in a more natural way yeah no, that's that's a good
1: question. Uh, <clears throat> the, the whole key to being an artist is connecting with your audience. And the way you do that is with your vulnerability and having the courage to put your vulnerability on the line. Uh, and if you're talking about your emotions and your feelings or your experiences, and you're doing it with empathy, you know, so you understand and the compassion to connect, then people will you're validating your audience's inner thoughts and feelings. And that's a huge thing. If you think of it like somebody like Nirvana, who It was like, you know, they they were the voice of a a generation, weren't they? But they were talking about all their angst and their feelings. And uh, Trent Reznor did the same, Nine Inch Nails. Um, All these artists have really dug deep, have put their emotions on the line. And that is what connects you to an audience. A lot of the cynical things on, um, basically people on social media, they look at tactics and tactics are pointless unless you have music that can connect with an audience really all you're doing is just getting a, a like, which means nothing, right? What you want mm-hmm. to really do is you're writing, it, it's, it's, there's definitely an art to it and it's, it takes a long time, um, not only to learn the craft of songwriting, but to have the courage to dig into your vulnerability, Um, to such a level that it does connect with people. And it's that kind of sincerity. Uh, In fact, if you, um, you know, you were talking about my writing and how you believed it was very, you know, the the sincerity comes across in it. And that's because there's a lot of integrity um, in what I write because I've experienced this both personally, what I write about and with my artists. So really what I'm doing is I'm connecting with an audience, but I'm just not doing it with songwriting. I'm doing it with being open and honest as I possibly can um, with the audience. And that's what songwriting is. You know, in fact, that's what art is. Um, And unfortunately, people look for the tactics and the quick hacks and the social media and the algorithms. And all that stuff is great if you have uh, remarkable music. And by remarkable, I mean music that people go, wow, that's really good. And it's worth sharing. And people go, you've got to listen to this. Because that's how you become successful, OK? Sure, you, you know, you spotify introduce artists to many many people but before you can become on spotify's radar you need to build an audience right because they're looking at numbers that's all it is it's a numbers game so before you can get something like a spotify or a radio one or whatever your big radio station is to support you you need to create your own fan base so that's how you do it
0: Yeah, I think it's really amazing advice. And yeah, like I say, I will link to all of the articles. I've written down many of the points that you've covered uh, in those things. Um, but yeah, the emotional connection, I think, is a really true one. And if, um, do you know the Australian singer Julia Jacqueline? No, I don't. She is fantastic and she, for me, um, I had a really strange emotional experience listening to her music only a few weeks ago. It's not going to make me sound like an amazing guy, but I guess I'm going to open up my vulnerability. I was doing something while listening to her music and I'd started crying. And I didn't know, I didn't know what I just heard in the song, but I was like, fucking hell, my, I just, like a tear just rolled down my face. And I rewound the track, and I listened to it, and I was like, fucking hell, that's some powerful lyrics. Um, Yeah, it's a lyric about asking your mother what life was like before you were there. It was like, fucking hell. I was like, it really, I'm sort of shivering now. But yeah, Julia Jaclyn, she's got so many of those sorts of, uh, like, intricate insights into life and emotion and relationships um, that, yeah, I think... um, She's a tremendous talent. And I just, yeah, I mean, I really feel what you're saying about the emotional connection with her for me personally. But I'm sure we all have it with artists around the world. Yeah,
1: no, I'm going to I'm going to check her out because I love finding artists. I mean, for me, the art of the, the, the like, true art is connecting with that audience and it's doing it exactly as you've just described it. Um, and, you know, the, the whole point of being, of having or, creating art is the sound, or at least in terms of songwriting, is to soundtrack people's lives, you know? Um, and that's what a great artist does. Um, yeah, and, you know, so many people, unfortunately, so many people are, are suppressed by their fears um, or pressure or various different things. And, you know, they're just scared to opening up. And I totally understand. But if you truly want to be uh, an artist, whether that's a successful artist or not, um, then you need to open up and then connect with an audience. And you'll find if you do open up and you put vulnerable uh, material out there, people are going to, there's going to be other people that feel, because we're all kind, we're all different, but we all feel very similar things. There might be different trigger points that's made us feel those things, but we all feel very similar emotions, you know, despite how many emotions that humans can actually feel. So by just explaining that and your experiences, you're going to connect with people. And wherever you connect with 10 people, 10,000 people or 10 million people, is largely regardless. You will find meaning and purpose in connecting with an audience.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's really, yeah, really salient advice for people, especially, I don't know, like if you think about traditional like hip hop songs, which is saying how much, how many Bitches and hoes or whatever you've got, or how much money the Escalades or whatever. Like, um, like, yeah, I don't really connect to that, but like, um, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, the reality. People like, yeah, that reality is, um, it's like a tangible, a tangible thing. Um, John Grant is another one who's a bit like that, who who really has some incredibly open, brutally honest lyrics about life and his feelings, and um, yeah, you don't see. I mean, you don't see many people being that sort of that deep and exposed, I guess, is the word, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, that, that's the key. If you look at all the greats, um, no, yeah, but you know, if you look at your nirvanas and people that have sort of changed culture and really grabbed youth culture, they are, they're all talking about these kind of emotions. And, you know, you go back to, like, the Simon and Garfunkels, the Pink Floyds, you know, they're all in their generation, even Fleetwood Max, all this kind of stuff. They're all talking about emotions and they're, displaying it uh, and connecting with people, yeah? You know, I mean, that's yeah. it. That's, that's what they're doing. I mean, look, they're doing it in a very artistic and uh, the songs are great, the hooks are great. They've mastered the, 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 the art of creating the structure of the song, which is part one. Part two is, is, is having the vulnerability to create the emotional depth. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's, yeah, yeah. that's
1: the part that most artists don't necessarily understand and then they look for that quick fix of tactics and hacks and stuff, you know?
0: Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Do you know Benny Blanco? Have you do you know who Benny Blanco is? Like he's someone he's someone that I've just like trundled along to on the internet and discovered but um w- such an incredibly likable and fun-loving uh character. You can see why he's successful when he gets to work with the biggest artists cuz he's just such an amazing guy. Like you yeah.
1: I mentioned the co presidents of um Capitol Records UK. So they've done everybody from Sam Smith, uh, well, they did Scouting for Girls, but JLS, Paloma Faith. I mean, they're super successful a r executives. The number one thing they look for in artists, and this will surprise most people, is likability. It's not talent. It's not vocal ability. It's not uh, live performance. It's not, it's likability. Because people like, you know, ultimately, they, they, ultimately they're pop. Uh, and people so you know they're, they work for a major label they work for a corporate entity whose main role is to sell as much as possible and people buy of people they like now in terms of benny blanco's situation you like to work with um, people like to work with people that they like so it's a very similar thing
0: Hmm. because he mentioned um working with ed sheeran um and then um like six months to eight months after they'd worked together, Ed Sheeran phoned him up from from a gig that didn't go so well and said, oh, man, I had such a great time working with you. I really felt like I connected with you better than anyone in the industry. Let's work together again. Um, yeah, yeah, you, serious, like, levels of likability there, magnetism.
1: The other thing is, again, there's, there's, there's Benny doing what his, what his job is, which is to connect with the artist. You know, that, that's what, you know, that's, I mean, it's pretty much the, you know, but well, it's, it's fairly well known in psychological circles and indeed mainstream circles that, you know, one of the things that provides a lot of happiness is our connections, you know, our friendships, our relationships, but this also works and, you know, on a very sort of um, work basis as well, you know. Um, so the, the, one of the keys, I mean, most producers will tell you, one of the keys um, to being a great producer is, of course, having the skill set to do it. But really, it's connecting with the artist, you know. So it's exactly exactly the same theory as, you know, the key to being you know, a successful artist. And by successful, I mean, you know, it could be 10 people, 10,000 people or 10 million people, you know. It's just connecting with people, isn't
0: it? Definitely, yeah. It, it seems. I mean, the, the big producers that I know, they really, they have, um, yeah, they have a full spectrum of admirable uh characteristics yeah they do fall into that they're likable they're helpful um like the most the most talented people i know are really open and will share their secrets with you um the producers that don't tell you how they did stuff are not the most successful ones in my experience
1: yeah i agree um, yeah i mean that again you could that's the sort the whole sort of growth mindset fixed mindset isn't
0: it you know so
1: growth, growth Mindset believes there's an abundance of, of you know, confidence in, uh, in, in your own abilities. There's abundance of uh, opportunities and fixes. I'm keeping it all for myself. And ultimately, you, you lessen your opportunity for uh, opportunities because, you know, you, you, you're not putting yourself out there, you know.
0: Definitely. Yeah, and I saw that you're going to do an AMA on Reddit. It's going to be after this goes out, but with a really talented producer. Um, Ken Lewis. That's it. Yeah, I was watching some of his videos. He um, he was sharing loads of amazing secrets, and it's like then obviously not secrets. They're just like how he works. But yeah, there was tons. I watched one of them. I learned I learned loads about mixing.
1: I mean, he just shares everything. He's just one of these guys. He's got a generosity of spirit. Um, he's he's very he's very much uh, somebody I connect with because I've got a generosity of spirit and I like to. Uh, tell everybody everything, and he's very, very similar to that. Um, so I've connected with him, and we've connected together, and it's great. Um, but, yeah, he's really, really open, and he tells all his secrets and stuff because he's very established. He's not bothered. You know, he's got a growth mindset. You know, there's abundance of opportunities. I mean, he's – well, as as you, as you may know, um, he's on, I think it's 101 – he's got credits on 101 gold and platinum albums now, which is just crazy. He's worked with everyone from Kanye West to Drake to Taylor Swift to J. Cole um, to Eminem. You know, the, the list just goes on and on. Ariana, Ariana Grande. It's, you know, blah, 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 blah. It, yeah. But I think the thing that impresses me most about him, he's just an incredible human being, where he's in a position where he could just be a bit of an asshole, to be honest,
0: but he's not. Yeah, and you you'd sort of wouldn't question him if he was, being that, um, having all those accolades, that's amazing, man. That's amazing. You did um, you you did post today on Reddit. I'm going to give away when we when we're having this conversation. But you did post today on Reddit about a slightly controversial subject of who you should be making or, or yeah, who the artist is making the art for. Yes, um,
1: I I did I, I did. It, it was um, it's in response to I put I posted it on um, Wednesday. So I put a post out a couple of days ago um, and it, it did very well. Um, however, there, there was, as, as there is always, there's an element that people that um, uh, respond negatively and that just happens. You can't control it and it's totally fine. And I always get back to people. Um, if, 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 I, if I've written, if I've created something that inspires, whether it be a positive or a negative response, I always go back and speak to people. And um, whether it's a, a positive um, response, a comment, or a negative comment, I always deal with it as positively as I possibly can. Um, however, this, there, there was a bit of a recurring theme, and the point of the the post was the uh, the true art is in your audience, where I'm talking about that the. the to the the, the key to art is, it goes back to our points that we discussed previously is that, you know, you don't become successful, the audience makes you successful, right? Is that we Mm -hmm. don't own the success, right? It's the audience that uh, listens to our stuff, buys our tickets, reads our blog posts, listens to our podcasts. It's the audience that makes the art in my view, right? And they disagreed with that. And they thought that art uh, should be created solely for themselves. And and some of them some of them were quite nonplussed about it, and others were quite angry about it. Um, And generally speaking, I find when someone's really angry about it, they're not really angry at me. It's getting directed at me,
0: but really, I've just hit a nerve. That's have you triggered something from the past and somewhere along the line. (laughs) I mean, I mean, there was one. I I had one comment, and it said,
1: um, and you know, it was provocative. I, I I grant you, but it was like there's 18 million song, 18 million tracks released every year, um, take risks, uh, take chances, or don't bother. Um, and really my point there is uh, I was, the context of that was that there's no point in creating within your comfort zone because in your comfort zone, it's all very safe. It's basically vanilla. Um, It's the reason that we get, um, I mean, I do it myself. I'll write something and I'll go, this is just filler because I haven't pushed myself. I'm not feeling fear. I'm not taking risks. I'm not taking chances. So I know that unless I'm feeling fear, I I haven't pushed myself far far enough um, with the content, with being provocative or or whatever. But anyway, this this, uh, guy had got very angry at me. Um, and had accused me of, uh, you know, I mean, obviously I don't know him, I've never heard his music, but of, of accusing him of having a lack of ambition. Now, obviously I've kind of hit a nerve there. And to be fair to him, he did come back and, and you know, apologise kind of later on when he calmed down. But uh, yeah, I think yeah. that a lot of people that uh, particularly, not, not always, I mean, some people are just genuinely want to write music for themselves and, and that's fine, you know? Um, in fact, it's fine. However, you want, if you want to write music for yourself, that's entirely your choice. You're, you're the artist. You do it what you want. But I think a lot of people are really, um, they're scared. It's a fear of rejection. It's a fear of failure. Um, and what we do is that if we're lacking confidence and we're scared of people's reactions, is we don't commit. And in um, professional tennis, for example, they call that tanking the game. Um, and that's where uh, professional tennis players don't try so hard so that when they lose the game, they're essentially self-sabotaging so that when they lose the game, they don't feel it's on their talent. It's that they deliberately weren't trying so hard. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Andre Agassi did it when he was world number one uh, uh, in the semifinal with Michael Chan because he was scared of meeting Boris Becker. Uh, Djokovic has been accused of a couple of times by John McEnroe commentary. So listen, there's nothing to be ashamed about. We all do it. I've been in situations, one of which I I admitted to or uh, opened up to in the post, where there was an opportunity uh, for a project and I uh, basically was scared of failure. So rather than doing it, I lied about it and said I was too busy. The project went on to be successful. And uh, I lost out. Now that's my bad, right? Hmm. So that's just an example of how we limit ourselves through fear. Um, and whilst maybe not all artists that write purely for themselves um, are, are, are doing it on fear-based decisions, I would say the majority of them are. You know.
0: Yeah. Right. And it's funny if you are if you are going to write for yourself then do you need to share the piece of music you've written with anyone?
1: (laughs) Well, it just seems bizarre to me, you know, um, because I mean, I I just can't imagine like writing an article, like spending two days writing 2000 words, redrafting, 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 and then just putting it away. Um, But I, I do kind of understand to an extent, because before I started posting articles on Reddit, I spent six to seven months writing and writing going, oh, am I good enough, am I good enough? So I definitely understand the fear part of it. But I think eventually you've got to release, you know, your creations, your art into the world and the reactions will be the reactions. You can't control them. Um, and frankly, the only way you can improve as an artist, be it as a writer, as a songwriter, producer, a podcaster, as you know, is you've got to make mistakes. You put stuff out there, you go, oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm not doing that again. And then you make another mistake, and you learn from that. So the only way to grow is actually by failure. Um, So we shouldn't, particularly in creativity, we shouldn't be scared of failure. Really, what we should try and do is fail as often as quickly as we possibly can, because that speeds up uh, your growth as an artist or podcaster or writer, whatever your you know creativity is.
0: Yeah, it's a really, really interesting subject. And yeah, for, for me personally, I've learned a lot about about doing this in three years of doing it. That, um, yeah, I think we all cringe and look back at what we've done in whatever we did, whether it's drawing, painting or, or whatever. But yeah, I think, yeah, that I think it is a great idea to just fail as much as you possibly can. That is a really fantastic way of learning. And um, yeah, also, like you said earlier about being out of your comfort zone. Like that's really valuable, especially for an artist.
1: Yeah, I think if, if if you're not if you're not out of your comfort zone, you know, um, n- nothing's ever going to happen. And I mean for yourself as well, um, because you know you're not going to create anything you're really proud of. Because we all know when we're not pushing ourselves, that's that's the reality. And we all know why It's because we're scared. We're scared of what people will say. We're scared what uh of criticism we're scared of you know getting rejected um we're so scared of investing our emotions and putting our heart and soul into something that it gets rejected you see so what we do is we hold back and um unfortunately if if you do that you're never going to fulfill your potential in whatever you're doing so the 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 key thing is um in creativity is failing keep pushing yourself because what happens is your comfort zone expands the more you do the bigger it becomes. And ultimately that's how you become successful is um, over a period of time. That's how you become a true artist and can actually really connect with people because no one expects you to start, t- start songwriting and then within six months talking about your deepest, darkest secrets. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's baby steps, right? You, you, you push yourself out a little, you push yourself out. It's tiny little steps, right? Uh, marginal gains if, you know, you want to listen to like a, a James Clear kind of uh, uh, or Scott Adams uh, uh, kind of philosophies on it. So, yeah, but, but definitely if you're not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, you're never going to fulfill your potential and then you'll never be really proud of, of, of what you're creating.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think going going back to the tennis analogy of like, I'm just going to win this game. or I'm just going to win this point. Those sorts of short term obtainable things. It's an easier pill to swallow than going, I'm going to win this entire match. Thinking the whole way through the match that you're going to win it is, is, it's probably quite draining because there's going to be times it doesn't work. And you think, shit, this isn't going to happen.
1: It's just, we, we, humans are just rubbish at pressure. That's their problem, right? So uh, if you ever be in a situation where someone just, chucks a question at you, weren't expecting it. And you know the answer, like, what did you have for breakfast? Uh you know, we, we, yeah, you know, and you know it's sausages, but because someone's, like, jumped in at you and put you under pressure, your whole front lobe just shuts down. It's such a weird thing. Um, but anyway, pressure happens because um, it's a physiology, and um, when our heartbeat starts increasing and starts becoming irregular, it starts sending messages to our brain. And what it's saying, it's going, Oh, uh, we're now going into fear mode. So what happens there is, you know, your hands start getting a bit clammy, um, and you, you know, your saliva starts moving from your mouth because basically your whole body is preparing itself for fight or flight. Um, and yeah. what it does there is, it shuts down your brain, so you start making terrible decisions under pressure. And in terms of your creativity, it's just non-existent, which is mm-hmm. what, which is part of the uh, one of the main problems um, for one-hit wonders or you know. Uh, missing that last minute penalty or whatever the situation is you know um so your ability to cope with pressure determines your performance um so yeah that's 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 just what it's all about really you know so really it's about moving as much pressure as you possibly can focusing on tiny tiny goals which are part of a system and if you have a successful system the successful results will come you know naturally
0: Definitely, definitely. And yeah, control the controllables and um, work on your stuff. And don't worry about the external, like, yeah, like, don't worry about what's happening externally. Yeah, because it's out of your control. I guess this has probably been the longest interview where we haven't like talked about what you're doing like now uh the like longest delay in talking to about what you're actually doing yeah so what so you've you've been in the industry for yeah you said 28 years yeah that's pretty yeah, impressive yeah no exactly
1: it's, it's, it's a long old time i mean listen it's been great I, 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 it's a brilliant industry um you know, it's it's a beautiful, a beautiful but brutal industry. You know, so there's many many ups and downs. Um, but yeah, most of the time, it was basically as a manager uh, and as a promoter. Um, but last December, after my third major burnout, I said, right, okay, that's it. Me and man- me and management are done. But I I love artists. I just don't want to be managing them. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and having all that expectation and you know pressure on it, and um, it's you know the management game is it's it's a, it's kind of like a dying business model. Um, just the way the the music industry is changing. Previously, there was um, less artists that were successful, but they were more successful, and as a commission-based um, business model, that made sense. Whereas now. It's a saturated business, so there's more people being successful, but with smaller amounts uh, in terms of mm. financials. So therefore, on a commission-only basis, when you've only got two artists, no longer kind of works as a business model. It works if you're an agent who are also um, on a commission-only basis, but they work with 20, 30 different artists. So it was part of financial decision, but mostly it was, a hey, I'm burning out, um, it's no longer worth it for me, and I just wanted to spend time with But what, what really kicked it for me was I was spending time with my daughter, who is the light of my life. Well, my whole family is the light of my life, but my daughter particularly. She's now six, but she was five, maybe just turn, turning four, just about turn five at the time. And um, I'd been working so hard, working with DIY artists, doing tours, doing everything really, uh, A&Ring, organizing the videos, doing everything because there's no budget you know, um, to do it. So that's... T- Doing, wearing five or six different hats, and I had some time with my daughter. And rather than enjoying my time with my daughter, I was worrying about ticket sales. And at that moment, you know, I just wasn't present, right? I was worrying about this, you know. And I said, Right, that's it, I'm done because this is no longer worth it for me, you know. And I don't mean from a financial point of view because we've been very fortunate with having success and so on. Um, What I mean is from a, a happiness point of view and from a point of view of realizing what's important, which is my family. So at that point I said, right, I'm done. Um, And that was December, 2019. And now what I do is I work with high achieving artists, helping them achieve uh, their peak performance under pressure. So a lot of things that we've been talking about, I help them uh, tap into their uh, creativity, deeper levels of vulnerability so they can connect with audiences. Uh, most of my clients are major label artists. Um, however, that was about three months before the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, naturally, you know, there's not, obviously there's no artists uh, touring. Uh, the, the main thing that I deal with with artists is uh, burnout. I mean, it's pretty much an epidemic at, um, uh, with successful artists um, and creatives, but, but more so with the touring artists, just the constant mm-hmm. sort of, uh, treadmill that they're they're constantly on a single touring writing promo da 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 for sometimes years on end, um, but naturally uh, with a global pandemic that's taken everybody off the road a lot of releases have stopped um, and that led me to go okay I need to fill my time I think I'll start a blog um, and start copying and posting them onto Reddit which takes us up to where we are now.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot. There's a lot to to sort of digest there. Yeah, I think um, certainly what I've seen from what you've written on Reddit has been really fantastic, and has really jumped out of the sea of of people's tips and ad- advice um, f- for musicians. What What would you do, say, like creatively to like spur? spur an artist there's books like the artist's way which is like a classic one to get people thinking creatively yeah is there any sort of things that you'd maybe little bits of advice you'd say to people who are struggling to express themselves creatively yeah, I mean, there's loads.
1: I mean, first of all, um, it's a great book artist way. I, I feel it's, it's more directed towards writers um, than, you know, musicians, and, but it still works, you know. Um, and yeah. I, I am actually, uh, yeah, random plug, uh, I am actually writing a book um, or I, I'm starting in the process of writing a book, which is kind of like a, a, an artist as in a musician's version of the artist way
0: wow that's great man yeah
1: i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it i'm I'm scared as hell i'm not gonna lie to you um but i'm gonna do it all the kind of stuff i'm talking about um and you see me and uh talking about on Reddit and other people's subs and my own um it's all going to be condensed and into this book you know
0: um Great. I'll proof. I'll. I'll gladly proofread it. I'll gladly help you if you need any help with that. That sounds really wicked. I'm going to hold you that, and you please, can please. know
1: that. um most people realise on Reddit. You know, most people don't post. Uh, have Reddit posts with two thousand words, which is pretty much bomb for me, and you can tell how much I'm, I'm waffling and talking on in this very podcast interview. That, that The book is probably going to be a lot of words,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but that's good, man. I think it's it's like it's quality of words. There's quality of words there. It's not like just quantity. Um, no, that's that's exciting, man. I definitely feel that you should do that. Yeah, thank you. No,
1: it's, it's it. I, I mean, what I feel is that. There's, I mean, I, I don't, I, we don't know how many, uh, and you know, developing artists and producers that are out there. I mean, we know that there's about four and a half million have released a track on um, Spotify in the last twelve months. We know there's twenty-five million uh, SoundCloud accounts, but obviously a lot of them are going to be lapsed. So nobody has any idea how many millions of artists and producers there are out there. What we do know is that there's forty thousand tracks uploaded on the Spotify every single day. That it's hugely saturated. So my advice to artists and producers is very, very simple. And that is just focus on the craft, focus on the process, forget about success. Um, if you f- focus on connecting with an audience, one person, five people, 10 people, and if you do all those things and you are good enough, and that will just grow exponentially and you will find commercial success. Now, whether that be your 1,000 true fans or you know a major record label deal, who knows? But the point is, is that not to, if you put all your expectations on being a successful producer and artist, you know, you're really setting yourself up for a big fall. And the problem for that, I feel, is that people either quit create, you know, writing or creating forever, which is a great. Well, I think that's tragic because that therein lies, you know, the key to having meaning and purpose, as we discussed earlier in the show, um, or. They do is what we also discussed is that you just start writing for yourself, and you're still not getting that purpose and meaning. So I think people really have to reframe what success is. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to lack ambition because you're putting all your ambition into creating, you know, becoming the best artist and producer, fulfilling your creative potential. Um, and I feel that's a great ambition to have. Mm,
0: absolutely. Um in Darren brown's book happy does talk a lot about success and um he he says that success is not something that you you get it's something that's given to you so um yeah you can you can't really strive for it because it's out of your control whether you get it or not so um uh yeah that's that's great advice man that's right i'm excited for that book i yeah i'll totally help you help you with that if you need any help (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> you're gonna regret it i promise you <laughs> yeah.
0: cool man well um yeah it's been really really great to talk to you jake thank you so much for speaking to me today no
1: listen honestly i've
0: really enjoyed it it's been great so yeah i hope it's
1: provided a lot of value for your listeners and yeah
0: absolutely and i think yeah i will direct um i will direct uh, the links to to the to the post that you've written on on reddit because i think they're really valuable for for musicians across the board and just artists in general maybe who are struggling with like their the mental the mental side of what we're doing here no absolutely i'd really appreciate that thank you great well um yeah i'm looking forward to this book coming out the book signing in a couple of years time (laughs) (laughs) fingers crossed fingers crossed (laughs) Cheers, man. Thanks. Thanks for speaking to me. Listen, that's been great. Thank you, mate. All the best to you. Oh, what a lovely guy Jake is. Um, he's got some really great insights, I think, into um, into the music industry, and uh, the pitfalls of it, and um, yeah, I guess um, the creative myth um, that people throw around the internet. Um, he's got a great way of putting ideas across and communicating with people. Um, yeah, and you can see why it's been so successful over the years. Okay, that's it for this month. Um, please do look at the GoFundMe page if you want to donate and help me run this thing that I do by myself. Um, that would be amazing. Next episode, we've got a huge artist on. Um, one of the biggest electronic acts in the world. Um, still going strong after a number of years in the industry. It's going to be an amazing chat. I hope you look forward to it as much as I looked forward to doing it. Um, Thanks for listening. I'll see you again soon.